Hey everybody, welcome again to the Taming the Truth podcast. This week we're going to be running through some cases. I'm joined here by Ryan LaFollette. Thanks Ryan for coming along and working through these cases with me. Happy to be here. All right, so here's the breakdown. It's uh, beginning of your shift. You just took uh, took over for a couple of patients uh, from your offgoing provider, and you see that three new patients have shown up on the board. First bed, you got a 74-year-old male. His chief complaint looks like it's back pain and lethargy. Uh, he has vital signs of 98.9 as a temp, blood pressure of 89 over 77, pulse of 111, O2 sat 97% on room air. Bed two, it's a 59-year-old female, complaint of headache, uh, temperature of 99, heart rate of 87, blood pressure looks good, 145 over 89, respiratory rate 13, O2 sat 99% on room air. And third and final new patient for you, a 55-year-old male with the chief complaint of leg pain. Uh, vital signs, temperature is uh, 98.4, heart rate 105, uh, respiratory rate of 15, blood pressure 158 over 95, and O2 sat 95%. So you're looking at the board, and, and which of these patients do you go to see first and why? Yeah, absolutely. So really common scenario, um, coming back to the pod, three new patients. Um, initially, your chief complaint obviously is, is most important, but really you're looking at vital signs is all you have to go on at this point, as well as I think it's important to ask yourself, like, what is the one critical factor in each of these patients that you want to know? Right, and leg pain, is there a pulse in the foot and a headache? How does the patient look um, as far as comfort level? And then lethargy should be a red flag uh, no matter what. In this particular patient, you have hemodynamic instability or question thereof um, along with lethargy. So I would definitely be seeing uh, bed one, your pseudo hypotensive uh, lethargy patient. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, you know, it's an interesting setup. If you take away that chief complaint of lethargy, those chief complaints, back pain, headache, leg pain, don't always necessarily excite you too much. Um, I mean, headache is, is one that we certainly see very frequently, you know, migraine or sort of, uh, you know, non-life-threatening headaches are vastly more common than the meningitis, subarachnoid, that sort of thing. Um, I agree with like seeing how that person looks. The leg pain is one that I, I always like to know, not only like pulse versus no pulse, obviously, but uh, is it trauma versus no trauma because uh, traumatic leg pain from a fall or something like that becomes a little bit of a different sort of approach to that patient than uh, than you would otherwise if it's an atraumatic leg pain. But yeah, I totally agree. In this in this situation, the elderly gentleman who is tachycardic and hypotensive um, and has lethargy uh, that's obviously the uh, that's obviously the one that you're gonna you're gonna see first. Um, I kind of like in this in this situation, like also if you can swing by those other two rooms on your way to see the new patient to just get a just get a quick quick glance of those individuals and see how they actually look uh, can can really help with that initial sick not sick uh, evaluation. All right, so let's uh, let's dive into to your patient then. All right, so this gentleman again, seventy four year old male, chief complaint of back pain and lethargy. So nursing notes when you look at it uh, in the chart before you get going. Basically, came in by EMS, complaints of back pain, had a fever to one hundred four today, and is confused according to family. Uh, has a history of end stage renal, and last had dialysis two days ago, hemodialysis. Um, vitals were as as they were before. Temperature ninety eight point nine. Blood pressure eighty nine over seventy seven. Pulse one eleven. O two set ninety seven percent on room air. And so you go in the room, and the and the history you you initially get is that. Uh, so this guy has got a history of end stage renal. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, dialysis. Dialysis two days ago. Diabetic. Diabetic. Has a history of BPH. Um, and basically, he tells you that he's there for some back pain. 
Uh, EMS picked him up from his hotel apartment building. It actually caught fire the day before, and he's just sort of staying there with family assistance. You know, he's had back pain and off and on for a year. He says he's just now, he's just really tired of it. Uh, family apparently told EMS that he really wasn't acting according to himself, and then he had a fever earlier today. Um, and they are actually the, the ones that called 911. Uh, patients say that he didn't take any of his any of his home meds today. So what? Besides that initial sort of little vignette, like what do you want to know on your HPI? Absolutely, uh, this guy just gets more concerning the more that we learn about him, uh, and I think. From the history, uh, the thing that jumps out to me is that this guy uh, has end-stage renal disease and is on dialysis, uh, which not only predisposes you to all the things that probably landed him on dialysis in the first place, um, such as the underlying vasculopathy, uh, but also the intrinsic coagulopathy, um, you know, raising concern about, especially in the setting of back pain, is this an RP bleed? Are we dealing with an infectious etiology in the spine? Um, so you raise the red flags. In addition, that's kind of validated by this question of a fever to 104. Um, and although it's not objectified um, in the emergency department, you really got to take that um, as as fact, uh, I think, coming from family members and that they give you an actual number. And this guy is lethargic um, and giving you um, a bunch of reasons to be concerned about infectious etiologies. Yeah, I mean, that, that Tim at 98.9 on presentation, you just have to that's one that you see it in the chart, but you really need to kind of confirm for yourself, not necessarily taking it again yourself, but, you know, feel the patient's skin, like assess them and see how, how you think that they, they are in terms of their, their, their temperature. Because that may have been an axillary. Who knows how good of an oral temperature that was if the patient was breathing heavy at the time. There's, there's all kinds of ways that, that, I, that you see that the initial documented temperature is normal. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you get a temp of 102 or something like that. Um, Especially in any patient that you have true management concerns when you are going to have an elevated temperature of, I will have a super low threshold to get a core temperature in those people. So anyone that has a report of home fever in the setting of neutropenia um, or active chemotherapy, um, someone that just doesn't look well um, that you're, you want a core temperature on, have a low threshold because that will really change your initial uh, management. Another interesting aspect of this case is that you know the, this concern of altered mental status from the family kind of based on that initial HPI, you get the sense that you're able to get a, a story from the patient and a story seems to kind of make sense. And we see this kind of frequently. And so I guess, I guess my question is like, how do you go about um, assessing like this alteration of mental status and, uh, and, and what are some, some tips and, and tricks there? Yeah, well, we take it for granted. I think the alert and oriented questions are just a great place to start because um, it'll give you a good idea and really give the family a good idea of what they are like relative to their baseline. If you can do it with family in the room, um, then you can kind of have a, everyone be on the same page as where the alteration is. Um, although the timing is certainly important as well as to really how long this has been going on. Has it been waxing and waning? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know. I think one of the keys to that as well is uh, is that ancillary history from family like you have to have some sort of external validation of how this patient is behaving now and or like a really good description of what they are usually like and what this alteration of mental status is usually like sometimes ems can provide that history but oftentimes that means that you need to go on a search for it, whether that's calling family if they're not present or calling a nursing facility if the, if, uh, if, uh, if the patient doesn't have any family that's readily available or if the nursing home may better know what their, uh, 
what their baseline mental status is. Uh, really knowing what that baseline is and how you're off of on it and like specifically what is meant by confusion or altered mental status becomes uh, becomes important as well. So is this like a delirium type picture? Is this more, and you know, the duration onset, all that sort of stuff becomes important too. Is this an acute delirium type picture, some sort of subtle dementia that's developed over time? You know, all those sort of things come into play. Yeah, particularly interesting that this patient was in a fire or around fire um, recently. Uh, you wonder if there's not some carbon monoxide component to it, uh, which would give you more kind of gradually clearing uh, as opposed to a, a worsening. Again, the fever trumps. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you kind of go into a little bit more history on the patient, talking a little bit with him and talking with family. You know, he denies any trauma to his back. So like during this fire, he didn't fall or get injured or anything like that. Um, he always has this pain sort of in his back. It's worse when he lays on it, worse when he moves, kind of very nonspecific. Um, he says he feels a little bit lightheaded, which is kind of new for him today. And he's had a, a loose, non-bloody stool today. Hasn't been on any antibiotics recently. He doesn't typically get diarrhea. Um, he's usually in a wheelchair because he's got bilateral foot amputation with chronic diabetic ulcers. So there's your additional clue as to what his general protoplasm is like in terms of his chronic uh, medical issues. Uh, uh, obviously, bad diabetes, vasculopath, end-stage renal. Um, hasn't urinated in several days, but you know that with his end-stage renal, you know he does make urine still. Although um, uh, he usually does typically urinate a little bit each day, if you ask him. Um, uh, so this this not going without urinating for several days would be a little bit of a change for him. Um, he did get a full dialysis yesterday; had no complications with it. Um, hasn't had cough, congestion, chest pain, shortness of breath, belly pain. Um, he's been eating and drinking okay. Um, anything else that you, you might find striking about that history? Or is there anything that, that clues you in into anything in specific? Um, not particularly, although you really got a, um, any physical exam finding or historical finding in the setting of an elderly patient with alteration, you have to take pretty seriously. Um, uh, over time, I've been really surprised how just the faint bit of abdominal pain can suggest cholangitis in these elderly patients. Um, a little bit of abdominal pain being um, pretty sig- significant urosepsis. Um, so the fact that the there is back pain is the predominant um, etiology makes me concerned for both spinal pathology and GU pathology um, that could be referred. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think anytime that you you see a pain-related complaint, whether that's chest pain, abdominal pain, uh, or back pain, you really need to try to make a, um, uh, make a discrimination as to whether or not this is sort of localized somatic type pain or whether this is like visceral referred type pain because um, because, you know, obviously the causes of those are, are going to be a little bit different. Um, so, like, he obviously has some chronic back pain, and we get a little bit of a nonspecific story. Some of it has features of somatic pain, you know, kind of the worst when he moves, that sort of thing. Um, but, again, he hasn't had any new trauma back there. Um, he's got a couple of other sort of constitutional symptoms that are going with it. Obviously, now has this fever as well. And so you start to worry about these other causes of potentially – uh, referred pain uh, that would cause uh, cause back pain. All right, let's go into his his physical exam. You know, he um, is a little bit drowsy, uh, but he does respond to stimulus. He's alert to his uh, to his name, his place, and the year. Um, well, you know, he's a little bit tachycardic uh, as he was on his vitals. Doesn't have any murmurs. His lungs seem clear. Um, 
He's able to, uh, from a neuro exam standpoint, he's able to participate in your history and physical. Creelinars are intact, symmetric uh, strength everywhere. Um, but it seems maybe just a globally a little bit weak, the weaker than you would expect. Um, he's got equal reflexes everywhere, uh, specifically in his lower extremities. Um, on a neck and back exam, he's got full range of motion, no real meningismus. His spines are non-tender, um, really everywhere. Uh, no step off, no deformity, no nothing like that. No external signs of trauma. Um, extremity exam, he's had the below knee amputations um, and everything else pretty much is normal. He's pretty well perfused appearing. No rashes, no wounds on skin exam. Um, and, uh, and with that, you know, with that sort of initial exam, also knowing maybe your abdominal exam is soft, he doesn't have any significant tenderness, maybe a little bit of lower abdominal discomfort. Um, knowing all of that, is there any other physical exam that you would like really mandate needs to be done on this patient? Yeah, so um, I would be a fan of using ultrasound as an adjunct in this patient, just wheel it to the bedside straight away, especially in your hypotensive patient. It's certainly reassuring that he doesn't have frank abdominal pain because AAA and associated rupture would certainly be a concern um, in this elderly patient with, with vasculopathy, with hypotension, um, with an alteration of mental status, uh, which could be quickly and efficiently ruled out um, with bedside ultrasound. Um, although certainly reassuring both the abdominal exam and that he has um, decent pulses and lower extremity strength. Um, but again, the fever um, certainly would uh, warrant a, a broad differential diagnosis uh, as well as a broad initial infectious workup. Yeah. I think oftentimes as well at this point in time, uh, it can be helpful to uh, mentally summarize things for yourself. And so what you have is basically an elderly gentleman who is clear vasculopath um, and diabetic, uh, poorly controlled, certainly in the past, who has fever, uh, which has been documented at home, although not present on, on your exam, tachycardia, uh, hypotension. Uh, and apart from that, really has a kind of vague and nonspecific both history and physical. There's nothing that you can clearly rely on uh, in that history and physical that points to an obvious diagnosis at this point in time. You know, and so I think that that, that that starts to make this patient a little bit challenging. You still have a kind of a broad differential. And that's why, you know, doing a, a rush exam in this patient is a, is a great idea um, simply because, you know, you really would like to assess, you know, his the tachycardia and and, uh, and hypotension, you know, you, we, we have a presumption that, that he could be likely volume depleted and that's the cause of his hypotension. But, you know, if he's in stage renal, he could also have a large pericardial fusion leading to like a tamponade type physiology and that could cause the same type of presentation in terms of his tachycardia hypotension. Uh, so it's, uh, I think that's a, that's a great move uh, early on in this patient. So, you know, at this point, you know, what... You know, what, what kind of things are you thinking about and or really like what imaging labs actions are you taking next? Like what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, urine and chest x-ray are probably the highest yield in the undifferentiated elderly uh, febrile patient uh, looking for common causes of sepsis. I'd ask for blood culture straight away as well. Um, given the extent of his hypotension, it's likely he's bacteremic from something, um, as well as, you know, BBG lactate, CBC, uh, BMP, uh, obviously straight away, um, but really an infectious etiology, so pneumonia. UTI and associated upper tract infections, and then spinal pathologies, I think, are definitely still on the differential, although um, we'd really like to take a look at the, the big guns before going and looking in the back. 
Yeah. You know, um, and I, you know, as far as obtaining urine from this patient, I mean, from my standpoint, you know, I would probably take a look with when you do that rush exam to see how full his bladder is, if he has much urine there to uh, to be had, uh, if he's retaining a lot. And obviously, if he had significant urinary retention, then you would uh, maybe, maybe that would raise your concern about sort of a neurologic spinal issue, early catoquina type picture, um, although he doesn't have a lot of other features that would go along with that. Uh, but um, like that, that also, you know, especially in these these individuals who have end stage renal and don't produce a ton of urine, don't urinate frequently, that going straight to a straight cath oftentimes is uh, is a more efficient way of obtaining that sample uh, in the emergency department. All right, so um, a little bit of labs. Get back. Um, your renal panel shows that he's got got renal uh, renal insufficiency, as one would expect. Creatinine is eight point five. Um, BUN's 52. He does have a little bit of an iron gap of 18, which uh, obviously there's a host of reasons why this gentleman could have that. The CBC, though, he's got a white count of 24.6, which uh, though the white count is obviously uh, not uh, uh, not the the greatest lab mar- marker in the emergency department. 24.6 is a pretty legit white count, um, and so should certainly raise your uh, raise your eyebrows a bit. Uh, his VBG is a little bit interesting. It's pH 7.54, PCO2 of 31, base excess of 4, lactate of 2.8. I'm not really sure how to interpret that in the setting of, of everything else with this gentleman. It certainly is not like a big metabolic acidosis. And his whole, you know, with that mild anion gap, his whole like uh, acid-base picture is a little bit wonky. He certainly has some respiratory uh, alkalosis going on or he's sort of over overdriving his, his, his respiratory rate um, and a little bit of metabolic alkalosis which you can see post uh, in, uh, dialysis from some of these uh, di- uh, end-stage renal disease patients but uh, 24 hours out also might be a little bit higher than one would expect uh, so uh, an odd picture there um, the remainder of his labs are really unremarkable. Um, he does have, uh, as you uh, note on an EKG, however, a new onset AFib uh, with his rate pretty much taken right into the 120s. That's one feature on the physical exam, I sort of forgot to mention, he did have an irregularly irregular uh, tachycardia. You, know, you don't see, you know, you review his records, you don't see any previous history of having AFib in the past. And then, uh, and then, from a UA standpoint, um, uh, nurse basically says she tried to have him void. He wasn't able to. She tried to, uh, a straight cath, and uh, basically just had some bloody purulence that clogged the catheter. Um, and then she did uh, he, he did a, bl- a bladder scan, and there was really minimal volume present. So uh, at that point, you know, what are you thinking with those those labs that have gotten back? Is there any, anything else that you would? consider or what's your next steps yeah so the labs really confirm the underlying suspicion that there's a septic etiology to to the patient's fever and uh, back pain Uh, don't really know what to do with the urine not being able to be obtained the fact that there was purulence there certainly would suggest that there that's probably an avenue to pursue in the absence of other sources Um, we even now have an ekg that shows afib with rbr which anytime there's an elderly septic patient in uh, RVR, I somewhat congratulate the heart uh, for trying very hard to compensate, uh, but don't initially address it uh, because it is likely compensatory and not primary, especially in the setting of the fever. Um, so really resuscitate this patient first and then deal with that EKG. 
subsequently unless they have uh, evidence of hypoperfusion or the rate is such that you think that it is uh, really becoming a, a filling issue and needs to be addressed primarily. Yeah, no, I, and that's an interesting point. I mean, there's obviously been several studies out in the past several years that have looked at patients with atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response, but who have some other line, some other ongoing medical process. Um, there's one in animals, I think in the BMJ had another one. Uh, and, and in both of those studies, they basically said that, you know, if you have some other underlying cause uh, ongoing, then you should probably be treating the underlying cause as opposed to treating the tachycardia in and of itself. You know, it, it's, uh, it's fine that, that you, if you are, if you happen to have a fib and you happen to be septic, then you will probably also happen to have a fib with RBR. Um, and it's not necessarily a primary cardiac issue or or, or concern. Uh, really, the problem is, is that you are significantly volume depleted. And so those patients will do best if you don't hamper their body's ability to compensate for their sepsis uh, by uh, actually continuing to resuscitate them. You know, it, it, however, it becomes a little hairy. I mean, you know, in your experience dealing with these patients, you know, how how aggressive how do you how do you manage your fluid resuscitation of them um and if there is a point at which you start to say okay well i think i want to actually rate control this patient you know how do you go about doing that yeah i think that's fair i think as with any elderly patient i think going low and slow will be um the way to go both in fluid resuscitation as well as rate control so um small concerted intentional boluses and frequent reassessment typically 500 of um some kind of crystalloid and then reassess uh, and i mean use your ultrasound to see um how you are doing and see how your ventricular response is if your rate really doesn't respond to adequate fluid resuscitation then i think considering rate control is probably an adequate next step with something that you can easily titrate if they have a profound hypotensive effect something like a diltiazem drip with or without a, a small bolus um, to try to rate control but only after fluid resuscitation yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, having some sort of concerted approach and small aliquot boluses is, is is definitely the way to go. You know, this is one where I I would ask the nurse if uh, he could pull out like the liter bag of saline uh, or uh, LR, uh, probably LR, uh, and uh, you know give half of that and then uh, and then come get me and then I can go and I can look and see what the patient's tachycardia is doing. Uh, and I can see what their blood pressure is doing, and I can maybe do another ultrasound and see what their IVC is looking like now, um, see how their how their cardiac function is looking like, and uh, if they still look like they can handle some more volume, then you know administer some more volume, uh, and then you know if I get to the point where I feel like I've I've given them sufficient IV fluids and yet they remain tachycardic uh, and significantly still, like if you're if you're 100 to 110, then I'll grant you that. I'll make sure they're not febrile, that sort of thing. But if they're still 130s, 140s, despite fluid resuscitation, then that's that's a time where I, I will choose to try and rate control them. Um, and I, you know, I, I I typically would would either you know I think uh, Delta is a good choice. I will also uh, advocate for like uh, small bolses of metoprolol uh, in this patient, um, or you know what was suggested in one of my in my uh, in my uh, asynchronous group uh, was esvalol, which I think is actually a, a pretty a pretty nice idea. Certainly from a, a fast on fast off standpoint, you can pretty quickly assess whether or not 
you're getting in trouble with it, um, and then you can make it go away uh, equally as quickly, uh, which is which is nice. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to block the patient down and then take away their their compensation for what's what's going on. We suspect maybe a urinary source in this patient, right? I mean, we have purulence uh, when we tried to do this uh, uh, do this straight cath, uh, really not able to get much in the way of urine from the patient. However, one thing I think that would be good here is to consider sort of uh, if this is a urinary source, like what could the potential uh, the potential originating areas be? Yeah. So a really physical exam here. So anything that is between the urine and the blood uh, should be adequately assessed. So um, that will be kidneys. So an ultrasound of the kidneys looking for hydronephrosis um, and or considering cross-sectional imaging of the kidneys to look for stranding and evidence of infection. Um, I would say that there's a low threshold to obtain cross-sectional imaging in the sepsis not otherwise specified patient anyway, certainly, which this gentleman falls into and probably would get a good sense for ruling out spinal pathology as well. Certainly not a cult uh, infection of the spine, although that seemed the cast out of the bag as far as uh, this patient's sepsis is concerned. Um, also prostatitis um, would be considered as well as like an orchitis epididymitis. So a good GU exam, including a rectal exam, and then considering cross-sectional imaging. Yeah, I think you know, I, I agree. Definitely GU rectal exam are going to be uh, important next steps, but cross-sectional imaging as well uh, is a good consideration sort of in the blind on this patient, if only because, you know, with them being on in-stage uh, in renal on dialysis, you know, they're having, you know, access to their vascular space multiple times a week. And so the possibility of them becoming bacteremic temporarily is a lot greater than sort of general population. So could they end up having a uh, rich peritoneal abscess psoas abscess, you know, a, a pyelonephritis from a bacteremic source, um, uh, or even a prostatitis from a bacteremic source. Like that's that's definitely a possibility. Um, and uh, if when you're left with sort of clear sepsis yet vague abdominal back discomfort, uh, you know, a CT scan though uh, uh, you don't though you don't want to like resort to it too often um, is probably going to be a, a helpful next step. Um, in this patient, you go back in and you do your uh, GU and rectal exam. The GU exam is, is pretty much completely normal. Your rectal exam, however, um, you know the patient has a lot of pain uh, when you're when you're uh, doing your digital rectal exam and doesn't really tolerate the exam very well. The prostate feels very enlarged and very soft, um, and it's exquisitely painful uh, for the patient to to do that uh, to do that exam. Um, you happen to also send the patient uh, for a CT. You had gotten a chest X-ray, which was negative as part of your workup as well. But you get a CT scan; it, it shows basically no ureter, no renal or ureteral calculi. Um, has some gallstones, but no evidence of pericholecystic fluid uh, or wall thickening of the gallbladder. It does have marked enlargement of the prostate. Uh, otherwise, doesn't really see anything. Uh, so, um, looks like this patient probably has some. Some prostatitis, it would seem so. Probably some acute bacterial prostatitis leading to sepsis. So, uh, now, what it, what's your approach on this patient? Um, what antibiotics are you considering? Where do you think you want to go with them? Yeah, so I think you got to still think pretty broad spectrum. Um, I'd say either cefepime or zosin, given the extent of this patient's septic shock. Um, plus or minus on vacomycin, since you have a source and it's like unlikely to be uh, staphylococcus. Um, but at this point, you can consider um, early pressors if the if the um, 
hypertension is not resolved with fluid resuscitation, and then I think you're safe to get this uh, patient upstairs now that you know that there's no surgical component uh, for source control. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, in terms of in terms of acute bacterial prostatitis, you know, there's a really great uh, review article in. Uh, journal family practice, uh, which kind of goes over uh, the you know how causation, speciation, uh, presentation, and treatment. And so, um, acute bacterial prostatitis it's it's most commonly caused by E. coli, um, as one would expect given its location. But the uh, next most cause, common causative agent is Pseudomonas, um, which uh, which you know we don't always think about in terms of uh, providing additional coverage for patients. But certainly in this in this septic uh, individual. Um, this would be a situation where we want to not only cover for sort of uh, our run-of-the-mill E. coli, but consider the possibility of pseudomonas or some other drug-resistant uh, uh, possibility. Um, and so th- that might mean then uh, not only choosing something like a carpenum, but also perhaps double covering, covering with an aminoglycoside. Um, obviously, in sexually active patients, gonorrhea, chlamydia should be considered. Um, but um, patients who have immunocompromised, you know, they mentioned HIV. But I could think you could probably argue in-stage renal with diabetes is going to have maybe some degree of immunocompromised associated with that. Um, you know, those patients can more commonly have really atypical stuff. Um, you know, HIV patients, you know, Salmonella, Canada, Cryptococcus, things that really wouldn't uh, fall onto the initial um, uh, mind of the emergency provider. Um, patients who have had like some sort of tra- recent transurethral mm-hmm. manipulation, um, so a biopsy or something along those lines, are much more likely to have pseudomonas, um, and are much also uh, also much more likely to have had uh, uh, resistance to cephalosporins or carbapenems. Um, you know, the presentation of these patients, you know, typically have some sort of dysuria, frequency, urgency that can go along with it. And that's obviously a lot more difficult in this patient because he doesn't really make a lot of urine. And so you might be missing out on a lot of those early symptoms. Um, you can have obstruction in your standard patient, but again, this patient does not make a lot of urine. And so um, incomplete voiding or infrequent voiding would be a common common symptom for this patient in his everyday life, um, but it would be something that would be of concern uh, when you're thinking about the possibility of uh, a prostatitis in the patient. Um, again, those are also, however, pretty nonspecific. You can see those symptoms with cystitis and that sort of thing as well. Um, but uh, so, so the more important thing, too, is, uh, is the report of some sort of uh, suprapubic or perirectal or perianal pain. Um, patients could have painful ejaculation, hematospermia, painful defecation is present as well. I know typically one of my questions for uh, any patient with uh, STI is, you know, are you having any pain with defecation in addition to painful testicles, swollen testicles, uh, you know, rashes, lesions, that sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, those patients with prostitutes also are going to be much more likely to get systemic symptoms, um, fever, chills, nausea, malaise, uh, as we have you know, seen in this patient. The digital rectal exam is something that you know you want to you want to be cautious with in these patients. You know if they have if you get uh, if you do your digital rectal exam, you know that they have a very large um, and, and somewhat soft feeling prostate. Um, then you want to be very careful about any you know aggressive or significant palpation of that prostate, if only because it can uh, can uh, can cause bacteremia. Um, and so you know, you know the evidence behind that's whether that actually occurs is is not great, but still. Uh, worthy of, uh, of, of caution, um, certainly for the not 
actively currently septic patient. Uh, you don't want to uh, cause some additional bacteremia when you otherwise would not need to. Uh, as far as uh, management treatment, you know, this is uh, treated like any other infection. So, so uh, in the patients who are otherwise constitutionally well, you know, if you were to take this patient and, uh, and make them 40 years younger and not septic, um, then you, know, you would probably gear your treatment more towards treating uh, gonorrhea chlamydium. Uh, so uh, I am ceftriaxone followed by a, a 10-day course of doxycycline uh, would be how you would uh, approach that patient. And uh, in the, the sicker patient, you know, you want to choose probably more aggressive antibiotics. Um, you know, they, you'll probably also want to look at your local resistance patterns to your E. coli. And so while uh, the AFP article recommends uh, ciprofloxacin as sort of a frontline treatment, uh, uh, you might want to talk to your pharmacist in terms of finding an additional agent if you have a high prevalence of fluoroquinolone resistance in your community. Um, uh, you know, we want to find an agent, obviously, that is going to have good um, tissue penetration into the prostate um, and uh, urinary system, um, but also good coverage for the for the likely uh, causative agents. Uh, so, Bactrim may be in there as well. Yeah, and I find that most of these patients have had some history of UTI and will have some old cultures, which is a great kind of initial um, antibiotic, like a personal antibiogram. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the super sick patients, like the one we're seeing now, you know, a recommendation would be for for zosin plus an aminoglycoside uh, or uh, cefotaxime or cetazidine, something really, really quite aggressive. Um, so, uh, uh, so that would be a, that would be a consideration. Obviously, you know, anytime you pull a trigger on an aminoglycoside, it seems like a big deal, which it probably is. Um, but uh, but for uh, for this patient, uh, given the possibility or concern for pseudomonas as a cause of, uh, of of their uh, of their uh, of their sepsis and, and prostatitis, you know, the, the maybe what has to be done. As far as future complications, you know, some of these patients can get prostatic abscesses, and so uh, um, you know, cross-sectional imaging would help identify those. Um, and urology consultation obviously would be uh, would be indicated uh, for the less uh, constitutionally ill patient than the than the one we see here. You know, the you can develop uh, some chronic uh, prostatitis, and uh, that's treated completely differently than than acute bacterial prostatitis. You know, some of the antibiotics are the same, but the duration of treatment is is really quite extensive, um, and those patients also need really good follow up as well. So with our patient, you know, uh, I think uh, in terms of level of care disposition, you're going to see how he responds to your your resuscitation in the emergency department, um, and uh, and uh, and rate control methods that sort of thing, uh, with his with his underlying uh, medical conditions um, and his general poor protoplasm. You know, he will probably better for an ICU step-down type level of care, depending on your facility. Um, but, uh, um, but you know, if he responds very well, you might be able to make a push for a lower level of care. But uh, generally speaking, this patient's going to probably end up ICU or step-down. All right, you still have two patients left to see now. So you got that first patient all taken care of while simultaneously ignoring completely your two other patients. Um, so which of those two would you like to see? You got a 59-year-old female, chief complaint of headache. Again, uh, vitals had a nondescript temperature elevation of 99, normal heart rate, normal blood pressure, normal respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation. And uh, in, your other, in your other bed, you had a 55-year-old male, chief complaint of leg pain, a little bit tachycardic at 105, 
um, but the remainder of his vials look generally okay. Sats 95% of Romare, maybe a skosh on the low side. Which of those two you want to see first? Uh, well, in an ideal world, I would roll by the patient with a headache, just get a general eyes on and make sure that they're okay. I think that uh, leg pain is typically unremarkable in the setting of hemodynamic stability, uh, but I do feel like it's something that we could probably at least get initial diagnostics and therapeutics on uh, quickly. So why don't we move on to uh, leg pain there and roll the dice on the headache. Okay, that sounds good. So for our next podcast, then, uh, we are going to be talking about this gentleman uh, who's coming in with leg pain. We'll find out what's going on with him. Thanks again, Ryan. We'll see you next time.